Tonight, voices from Memphis grieving and remembering Tyree Nichols and asking what would make a difference. A new society that does not have policing that is brutal and militaristic in culture. For Saturday, January 28th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. Michelle Martin. We also speak with the former police chief of Charlottesville, Virginia, about why police killings like this keep happening. The training on paper is very different than the socialization, the indoctrination. And on a happier note, director Ryan Johnson on his new whodunit for the small screen. Now, the problem with that is how is a mystery not over in five minutes if the detective can detect lies? And the latest from Sundance. That's all coming up. But first, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Protesters in Memphis are keeping up pressure a day after the city released videos showing a violent police beating on Tyree Nichols after a traffic stop. He died three days later. Nichols and all of the officers are black. NPR's Debbie Elliott has more. Five black officers were fired and are charged with second-degree murder, aggravated assault, and kidnapping, among other charges. Tyree Nichols' parents say they're pleased with the swift move for justice, but they're also calling for a change in policing tactics. We gonna call it out? Yes. Call out the culture. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump represents the family. It doesn't matter if the officer is a black officer, a Hispanic officer, or a white officer. It is the culture that allows them to think they can do this to Tyree. Activists want to remove police from traffic enforcement and end specialized criminal task forces. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Memphis. And Memphis police today say they are permanently deactivating the Scorpion unit that the five officers who killed Nichols belong to. Israeli police say a Palestinian shot and wounded two people in East Jerusalem this morning. And here's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. Police say a 13-year-old Palestinian boy opened fire outside a Jewish settlement site in a Palestinian neighborhood. The wounded men were a father and son and they were rushed to the hospital. Police say the gunman was shot and wounded. On Friday night, at the start of the Jewish Sabbath, a Palestinian gunman opened fire outside a synagogue, killing seven people and wounding three others. Police killed the gunman and have arrested dozens of his relatives. Friday's attack was the deadliest attack against Israelis in years and took place a day after Israeli troops carried out their deadliest raid in the occupied West Bank in years, killing nine Palestinians, including militants and a civilian. Israeli police say they're on high alert for more violence. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Ukraine is threatening to boycott the 2024 Olympic Games in Paris if Russian athletes are allowed to compete. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has more. In his nightly address, President Volodymyr Zelensky says he does not believe there's neutrality when it comes to war and that tyrants try to use sports to spread propaganda. Any neutral flag that Russian athletes use, he said, is stained with blood. The IOC said in a statement that athletes should not be discriminated against because of their passports. The IOC's president, Thomas Bach, said on Friday that he was open to Russian and Belarusian athletes competing as individual neutral athletes without identification with their nationality. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Kyiv. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in Boston. Outside the State House this afternoon, people gathered to express their outrage at the beating death of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police. The demonstration is one of many being held across the country since a video of the attack by police was released. Massachusetts lawmakers say they're shocked by the video. Democratic Whip Catherine Clark is calling on Congress to pass the policing bill named after George Floyd, who was killed by police in Minneapolis. Meanwhile, Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox says he's committed to improved training for officers. Woburn teachers are vowing to strike Monday if they don't get a new contract. They want higher pay and smaller class sizes. Woburn Mayor Scott Galvin says any strike would be illegal and disruptive. You know, our goal all along is to, to and continues to be, despite the uh, unlawful vote to strike, you know, our goal has always been to get this contract done, get, get what's in the best interest of the students, uh, fair to our teachers, and, and good for the city and our taxpayers. Negoti- negotiations are set for tomorrow morning. The Sandwich Public Library now has a special section to allow visitors to anonymously borrow books on topics including addiction, mental health, and LGBTQ issues. Librarian Sandra Murray says the program is especially valuable in a small community like Sandwich. If it were me and my husband had PTSD and I needed help, I may not want to go to my small local public library where I know a handful of the employees and hand them the book and say, oh, (laughs) my husband has PTSD. I may not want to put that out there until I feel comfortable doing so. Murray says people do not have to check the books out at the desk or have their name entered into the library's electronic system. It's 5.06 and weather. Clear skies tonight, low 30s. Tomorrow, more clouds and sun. Temperatures on the mild side, low 50s. Monday, partly sunny, mid-40s. 48 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. It's been nearly 24 hours since video was released depicting the brutal beating of Tyree Nichols by five Memphis police officers. City officials and the family of Nichols have appealed for calm in the wake of the deeply disturbing video becoming public. So far, protests nationwide have been largely peaceful, but the anger and outrage remain. WKNO's Katie Reardon is in downtown Memphis and is with us now to tell us more. Katie, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So we understand that there were more protests planned today. What can you tell us? Yeah, that's right. I'm in downtown Memphis where another protest has begun. People started gathering around 3 p.m. local time. Shortly after, dozens started marching. Some were carrying umbrellas, trying to stay dry as it started raining here. One protester, Cassio Montez, was using a bullhorn to vent his anger at the Memphis Police Department. And we're going to be out every day if we have to. Whatever we got to do to make this happen, it's going to happen because it's been going on for too long. And we're standing on being for Tyree and for the rest of the victims from the MPD. Yesterday, protests shut down traffic on the I-55 bridge that crosses into Arkansas. But I should stress that these protests have been peaceful. Uh, I heard folks reminding each other that they were there for Nichols and for reform. 
And uh, people are galvanized by this, and they say they're committed to see some sort of change. You know, on that note, Katie, five officers, the five that we mentioned, have been fired and are facing charges. And on top of that, two sheriff's deputies have been relieved of duty and are being investigated for their conduct uh, at the incident. So how are those decisions being received? Well, law enforcement are being credited for moving quickly with charges for the officers and releasing these graphic videos. But there are also a lot of other questions about what went on behind the scenes. For instance, people are asking why the sheriff's office may not have known until last night that some of their officers were there that night. Also, there are questions about two fire department employees who were also under who are also under investigation. We're still sorting through the footage, but it appears that two first responders did not take appropriate action with Nichols, who was clearly in distress. And there's also the matter of this special unit that these officers belong to. The team has now been deactivated and the police chief has called for an independent review. So go, go um, ahead. On, a, mm-hmm. on another note, mm-hmm. uh, anybody who has watched the video is bound to be struck by the number of law enforcement, uh, law enforcement officials that appeared on scene. The local district attorney who announced the original charges uh, against the five officers said it doesn't preclude further action from his office. And you've also been speaking to some local community leaders. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you've been hearing? That's right. I talked to Reverend J. Lawrence Turner, a well-known faith leader here in Memphis. He's been counseling his parishioners. They've told him they're sad, angry, in disbelief, really just looking for words. They say they see themselves in Tyree Nichols. Uh, Reverend Turner says he's urging people not to turn away from the pain. There are really a number of things I would say to them. Uh, the first of them is to give themselves space and grace to live with those emotions. God has made us human with emotions. And so we ought to give ourselves an opportunity to just live into what those emotions are. Reverend Turner went on to say that he wants people to channel their anger and energy into helping to bring about change. He said there's a real challenge, though, in tackling a police culture that normalizes violence. So before we let you go, what about Tyree Nichols? I'd just like to hear a bit more about plans for remembering his life. Are those plans taking shape? Yes, uh, there will be a funeral on Wednesday. It'll be at Reverend Turner's church. A large turnout is expected. He's anticipating all 2,500 some seats to be full. There have been numerous vigils for Nichols and the family held a memorial service shortly after his death. Also online, there are videos and photos circulating of a, a young man with an infectious grin described as somebody who was quick with a hug, a proud father. He loved his mom's cooking, skateboarding, and even Memphis itself. Um, His family and others want the general public to know who Tyree Nichols was, to celebrate his life, and to share the video of him doing the things that he loved, Uh, not the darker, more distressing images that we've all now now seen. That was WKNO's Katie Reardon. Katie, thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you. It almost goes without saying, but Tyree Nichols' death after a vicious beating by now-fired Memphis police isn't the first extrajudicial killing of an unarmed person. It's just the latest, in a list that's too long to name here. Elijah McClain in August 2019, George Floyd in May of 2020, and others whose names may never be known. But on top of the trauma to families and communities and the damage to police and community relationships, municipalities have paid out tens of millions of dollars in legal settlements, not to mention repairing the damage that often comes from civil unrest when the police misconduct becomes public. So that raises the question, 
Why does this kind of behavior continue? To talk about that, we've called Rochelle Brackney. She has years of experience in law enforcement. She's the former police chief for Charlottesville, Virginia, where she was the first African-American woman to hold that position. Prior to that, she had decades in the Pittsburgh Police Department, and she's now teaching at the university level. And she's with us now. Chief Brackney, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us once again, although, of course, I'm sorry about why. I agree. And thank you for um, having me and at least providing an opportunity and space for there are our perspectives and opinions to be heard. When you saw the body cam video that was released, I'm sure this isn't the first disturbing video that you've seen of an encounter like this. But but what stood out to you? It was painful. It was painful, you know, as a a black woman. It was painful as a someone who has a, a black husband, you know, as a wife, it, I've got my brothers and my cousins and my nephews. And what was gut-wrenching is the cries for his mother. He's 80 to 100 yards screaming mama. But the, the cries of desperation that maybe his mother could somehow protect him as, as black mothers have always been forced to protect our children um, against institutions of violence and supremacy. We're going to hear what these former officers have to say when they go to trial. But it seems that part of their what they're angry about is that he ran. What, tell, what's all that about? Like, don't make me run like that kind of thing. What's that? What is that about? I came on in 1984 and there were those kinds of unspoken. If you disrespect me, if you make me run, there's this curbside justice, this punishment that I'm going to give you. We saw it in Freddie Gray. We're going to make you pay for the fact that you required us to do what is part of our job. And it's running, it's it's being in shape, it's you didn't speak to me in the manner that I want to be spoken to. They used every obscenity, every demeaning and degrading obscenity against Tyree Nichols. So it's not even just the physical punishment, it's the demeaning way in which we speak to him um, as well that says we are allowed to treat you any way we want to. Is this kind of thing taught? I mean, is this the kind of thing that you're taught to do? The training on paper is very different than the socialization and the indoctrination. We send these subtle messages all of the time that go against the formal training that we have on our lesson plans. Um, And we do that through, hey, you've got to come home every night. You've got to make sure that they never do this to you again, that they never think about challenging you. And those subtle messages are always um, us versus them. It's been reported that all the officers in this incident, although subsequently I do want to mention that two EMTs have been fired and two sheriff's uh, deputies have been uh, are being investigated for what they failed to do in this situation. But the former officers who were involved directly in this incident were members of something called the Scorpion Unit, standing for Street Crimes Operation to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhood. And it was supposed to be responding to so-called crime hotspots. Okay, look, it is a fact, and it is it is known that that you know, according to FBI data, Memphis was the most violent metropolitan area in the United States in 2020. They set a record for murders in 2021, uh, breaking the previous record, of, of, which was set the prior year. So this this kind of specialized unit where people are going to jump out and and, you know, confront people, supposedly. This has been done in other places. And there have been many, many abuses reported. There have been lots of, you know, scandalous incidents in connected to these so-called specialized units. What is the thinking in law enforcement about this? Is it that that's the best you can do? Or is that what the public wants to see? 
This has been a long history, long standing. When you have these specialized units, there's a tendency to cover up based on self-preservation. A lot of what we're seeing coming out of Memphis right now is self-preservation for policing. And how do you stop what you call this this kind of indoctrination versus training? I mean, you, you've, you've spoken about this several times. You said that there's training and then there's indoctrination and the indoctrination starts immediately. How do you intervene in that? We've got to reprogram officers as to what their job is, right? Um, it is not... Um, in us versus them. We are part of the fabric of society. And until we realize that, that we are no better than them or the rest of society, that we don't get to, um, you know, met out justice, curbside justice, because we don't believe they're gonna, there's going to be justice in the system. Um, when we stop saying it's not the five um, like that has been going around that represents the 800,000 other police officers, Yes, it is. Until we own and acknowledge as part of our history and part of our teaching and part of our trainings that um, we are part of oftentimes state-sanctioned violence, um, until we as the policing profession refuse to comply with what the state is requiring of us and what the institution is requiring of us, um, it'll continue. And that's the only way that we stop indoctrination. We have to resist as well. That's Rochelle Brackney. She has decades of experience in law enforcement, most recently as the former chief of police of Charlottesville, Virginia. She's now a distinguished visiting professor of practice at George Mason University. Chief Brackney, Professor Brackney, thanks so much for talking to us today and sharing this expertise with us. Thank you so much for having me. You be well. And we'd like to let you know that I, along with other members of our team, will be in Memphis tomorrow. We'll be talking with community members and leaders, including Representative Steve Cohen, about where the city goes from here and what changes they'd like to see in Memphis and across the country. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 518. It's been a minute. It's coming up at 6. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Discover meaningful work with a master's in mental health counseling. 94% of grads hold clinical jobs or are in private practice. GRE and prerequisite courses not required. State licensure eligible, now accepting applications for fall. More at bgsp.edu. In weather, clear skies tonight, low 30s. Right now, it's 48 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Preludes, Dave Malloy's musical Fantasia unfolding in the mind of pianist Sergei Rachmaninoff, featuring some of Boston's best musical theater performers with live onstage Rachmaninoff pieces played by music director Dan Rodriguez, now through February 5th at Lyric Stage Boston, lyricstage.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Most protests are taking place around the country today over the brutal police beating of Tyree Nichols after a traffic stop. He died three days later, and the now ex-officers are charged with murder. And today, Memphis police say they are permanently deactivating the Scorpion unit that the five officers who killed Nichols belong to. That's something the Nichols family was asking for. Nichols' funeral is scheduled to be held next week. 
Israeli police say a 13-year-old Palestinian boy shot and wounded two people in East Jerusalem this morning, and police say the gunman was also shot and wounded. And struggling British airline Flybe has filed for bankruptcy for the second time in less than three years. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Earlier this week, volunteers and officials fanned out across the Washington, D.C. metro region to conduct something called a point-in-time count. That's an effort to figure out exactly how many people are living on the street or in shelters on a given day. It's just one way governments are trying to get a handle on how many people are dealing with homelessness. And that's a problem that's become increasingly visible across the country, where tent encampments are emerging and growing in places that have not seen them before. Last month, the new mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, called it a state of emergency in her city. That's just one reason we thought this would be a good time to check in with someone trying to address homelessness and other housing issues, and not just in Los Angeles, but across the country. So we've called Housing and Urban Development Secretary Marsha Fudge. Madam Secretary, thank you so much for speaking with us once again. Always a pleasure to speak with you. So you're familiar with this, the so-called point-in-time count. It's used yes. to capture you know, a snapshot of people living outside and in shelters on any given day. Um, the Department of Housing uses a survey to help determine just how much funding jurisdictions should get. And everybody recognizes that this is not a perfect tool, but it's, you know, it's one tool. According to the 2022 Annual Homeless Assessment Report, it, it found that nearly 600,000 people were homeless on a single night in January last year. Now, this has been you know, a focus of your administration. The administration says that it wants to reverse this trend and bring it down substantially by 2025. So I just wanted to first just get your take on, you know, why, why are we seeing what so many people are seeing? As we said, you know, your former colleague, Karen Bass, said it's like a state of emergency in her city. What, what do you think are the contributing factors here? Uh, what we are seeing, because primarily of the uh, pandemic, we saw the numbers go up for 2022. A large portion of that, probably almost a third of those, or a fourth, let's just use a fourth, are veterans. So we've got VA that is working diligently to make sure that we get people housed. We have people like Karen Bass, who have already started to take thousands of people off the street. Uh, the governor of Oregon has, has also deemed it a crisis. And so everybody now is focusing their attention and their resources on making sure that we can get at least those who are unsheltered off the streets as quickly as possible. But we are also looking at the fact that uh, we are working with cities. You know, we have about 100 cities and communities that have agreed to work with us and give us a definitive number of people they plan to get off the streets. Um, we've already hit our goal for last year, which was to create 
100,000 new housing units and getting people off the streets. So those numbers are going to come out in the next week. So I think you're going to start to see the numbers go down. I, I do want to point out, you were a member of Congress before taking this position. You were also a mayor before you took this position. So you're you're not unfamiliar with some of these issues. Is that is this primarily an affordability problem, or is there something else here that we need to talk about? About 40% of all homeless people in this country live either in California or in New York. And so pricing has put them out. The economy has created... Um, an environment in which people just cannot afford to live. And so, yes, that is a problem. But we always had a problem. We've had a problem over the last 10 years, especially. And so the problem just got worse because of the pandemic and the economy. So it is both. But my biggest concern, Michelle, to be perfectly honest with you, is people don't even realize who are homeless. We have families with children who are sleeping on the streets, senior citizens, primarily black women. When you start to talk about our seniors and our children, the urgency becomes greater. So going back to to Los Angeles, you pointed out Los Angeles and New York have the largest number of people who are continuously unhoused. The, in the in the report by the LA Times, I mean, three of Los Angeles's main housing authorities failed to properly spend $150 million in aid between 2015 and 2020. And when they were asked about this, one of the agencies blamed your department. They said it's your rigid and complex funding system, which makes it really hard to spend funds quickly or reallocate money that can't be used for its original purpose. You know, how do you respond to that? Well, I respond by saying it absolutely is not true. Uh, And I think that it is proven by the fact that we have a brand new mayor who comes into Los Angeles and she is changing it overnight. We've not changed any rules. The problem was in Los Angeles. It was in California. And so when you have people who have the will and the ability to make change, they do it. It has never been our restrictions. You know, we don't hear that from other states. They all work under the same rules. You just have to want to do it. And and Mayor Bass wants to do it, and it is happening. All right. Well, let's move to another topic in the time that we have left, which is housing discrimination. I mean, this is something that um, the Fair Housing Act has been the law since 1968. What What is it that isn't working? We still redline properties. We still live in segregated communities. I mean, we are looking at communities all over this country who are still living like they did in 68 when this law was passed. We are still looking at a racial wealth gap that is bigger today than it was in 1968. And so we know that we have to address discrimination and the Fair Housing Act requires us to do it. We are saying to cities, you are required by law to try to make it better. And so we are putting out this rule that basically says we want you to submit to us a plan to tell us how you are going to address discrimination in your community. And HUD is going to be, uh, have oversight over that plan and make sure that you're doing what the law requires. It's just really that simple. What's the enforcement mechanism here? If we find that cities or communities are not in compliance, we have a number of things we can do up to and including not funding them. Uh, And we intend to do just that. We're saying to them now, you must go to your community. You must talk to them about what these plans do. You must ask them for their input. And once that plan is approved by HUD, we're going to enforce it by not only requiring a reporting schedule, but putting that schedule 
publicly on our website so that people can see the progress or lack thereof. You're doing this in a particularly sort of at an interesting time sort of politically now that Republicans have taken over the House. The Republicans have made it clear that they expect to do what they consider aggressive oversight of the administration. Um, One can imagine that they will be very interested in this rule. And I'm sure. How do you plan to respond to that? If they want to fight about it, I mean, there's nothing I can do except for the fact that I am in, I am determined to address the continuing discrimination and segregation in this country as long as I am here. And so we'll just we'll we'll have our differences, but this rule is going forward. Marsha Fudge leads the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Madam Secretary, thanks so much for talking with us today, and I do hope we'll talk again. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. Workers in France and the United Kingdom are walking off their jobs. The strikes have the potential to ground whole sectors of their economies to a halt, but they're doing so for different reasons. In France, President Emmanuel Macron is trying to amend the country's pension system, which he says requires raising the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. In the UK, people want more money because the cost of living in Britain is becoming so high. Joining us now to tell us more are Eleanor Beardsley in Paris and Villa Marx in London. Thank you both so much for joining us. Us. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. All right, Eleanor, we're going to start in France. Just tell us a little bit more about what Macron is trying to do and why. Absolutely, Michelle. Well, reforming the pension system was Macron's campaign promise. He wanted to make it viable for future generations. You know, he's this young, dynamic president coming in. He wanted to reform this notoriously unreformable country. It's kind of like the Social Security system, our Social Security system, the French retirement. You, you know, you pay in while you're working and then it pays you. Every president has tinkered with it in the last 20 years, and Macron actually started the reform in 2018, but he took a pause for COVID, and he's picked it back up again, and it's not necessarily gotten easier. It seems that everyone is against one of the main pillars, which is working a little bit longer. He wants to raise the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64, and that's not gone over well at all. How do we know that? Like, What are you seeing in public opinion there? Well, first of all, the unions are united against it, and a lot of times they'll split on things. And also the poll shows 72% of the French are against it. That's up from 59% just two weeks ago, so it looks like the government is losing the battle of public opinion. And 10 days ago, the unions called for a strike and protest day, and it was very successful, Michelle. There were more than a million people in the streets of France. Here's one of them, 45-year-old Raphael Tremilato. He teaches carpentry at a vocational high school. He was wearing a skateboard taped to his back that said, we don't want 68-year-old teachers. Here's what he says. He says France is a rich country. People in previous generations retired younger. There were no problems. And why should we be working longer if society is progressing? So he says there are other ways to buttress the system, and it's not faltering, as the government says. And this reform, and many people agree, is putting the burden on the shoulders of blue-collar workers and women who have sometimes have had interrupted careers. Willem, what about the UK? Can you tell us who's protesting there and what are they saying about why? Well, over the, the past week, there have been strikes involving ambulance paramedics, nurses, bus drivers, teachers, physiotherapists and, and courtroom workers. Next week, there'll be several days of strikes involving railway workers. And, and many of these are far from the first time that these particular groups of workers have walked off the job even recently with a bunch of different unions across a whole range of British business sectors initiating these kinds of strikes over the past few months. The impact has at times been pretty major. You've had hospitals cancelling non-emergency operations, for instance, or you've had the country's entire train network essentially 
grind to a halt on Sundays. Even this week, some warehouse workers at Amazon's UK subsidiary formed picket lines to protest the fact that their hourly wages are just pennies more than the national minimum wage. So is there a common thread among all these different groups of workers? Well, you know, as you might expect, it's around pay and and working conditions sometimes. The UK's national inflation rate has been almost as high as 10% in recent months. That means, you know, when wages stay the same, but prices for food or energy or rent are much higher than they were a few months ago, people struggle to make ends meet. And in Britain, economists are calling this a cost-of-living crisis, whereas a a private company might decide to pay workers more money. In in the public sector, of course, it's the government that has to decide whether to increase wages. And a lot of these jobs, emergency workers, civil servants, teachers, you know, these are people who are paid according to wages set, in part at least, by government ministers. They themselves say they're worried that raising pay will mean inflation itself stays high. So it's a bit of a difficult situation. And the Conservatives in power right now, led by Rishi Sunak, They've earned a pretty terrible reputation the last few months when it comes to economic competence. And after all the upheaval from Brexit and then the pandemic, some economists are worried that there could be serious long-term consequences for Britain's global competitiveness, its, its attractiveness to investors, if high inflation and then low economic growth continue for that much longer. So you're telling us that there are more strikes planned in the UK. Eleanor, what, what's next in France? Michelle, everyone is bracing for Tuesday when unions have called for another big strike in protests. We'll see how successful they are. Meanwhile, the government wants to put the bill in front of Parliament on February 6th. They'd hope to pass it quickly, but the far left and the far right are against it. They've attached 6,000 amendments to it already. So Macron is going to need every vote he can get, and he no longer has an absolute majority. So if he doesn't pass this, it's going to weaken him. Willem, let me end with you. Is what's happening in France and what's happening in the UK tell us anything about what's going on on the rest of the continent? Well, if you look at some recent economic data out just this week, it shows that across what we call the Eurozone, that's the 20 countries that use the Euro currency, there's an indication that business activity is expanding slightly. And that's despite all these fears at the end of just last year that there'd be a recession in Europe and it was imminent thanks to the high energy prices, the conflict in Ukraine. Supply chains for businesses, they're facing fewer of some of the challenges that they were over the last couple of years. Consumer confidence in big economies like Germany, it's improving. That, of course, suggests that demand will rise and and that, you know, given a tight labor market, it's quite a good moment for employees to ask for higher pay or better working conditions from their employers. In the UK, I would say, meanwhile, the data indicates that business activities actually shrunk. And of course, all these strike days, they have broader economic implications as well. That was Villa Marx in London, and we also heard from Eleanor Beardsley in Paris. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Sundance, the famous film festival, closes this weekend. And for the first time in two years, many participants travel to Park City, Utah to take in screenings, parties, and panels in person. 
But critic Bob Mondello is not among them. He's been enjoying the hybrid event in Argentina, and that's where he's with us from now. Uh, Okay, explain yourself, sir. (laughs) Well, I figured it's the World Wide Web, right? And during the pandemic, Sundance has had an online presence. Why not watch it where it's warm? (laughs) I'll miss all the standing ovations, but I had access to more than 100 films, and that's pretty good, right? All right, so tell me about some of those 100 films. Now, Sundance has a reputation for finding new talent and independent films. Did the festival kind of meet that standard this year? Oh, I think so. More than half of the feature films in the competition were directed by women. Almost half were directed by persons of color and about a quarter by directors who identify as LGBTQ+. None of that is true of Hollywood as a whole, so these genuinely are new voices. So tell us a little bit about your festival, some of the the films that you picked, and how did you do? I started on a real high note, the music documentary Little Richard, I Am Everything, about the architect of rock and roll, and he is just fantastic. At one point, he tells an interviewer, I'm not conceited, I'm convinced. (laughs) You believe him. And I followed that with a film called Magazine Dreams about a bodybuilder jacked up on steroids with an amazing physical performance by Jonathan Majors from Lovecraft Country. That was a very good first day, you know. So... Forgive me sort of for, you know, asking about the kind of the business side of it. But, you know, filmmakers do go there to get distribution to sell their films. Have there been some big film sales this year? Yes. And they were worried about that. For the last two years, the deals haven't really been coming through because of the pandemic. But streaming services came to the rescue this year. Netflix paid $20 million for a tense hedge fund thriller called Fair Play. It is terrific. And Apple Plus played nearly that much for Flora and Son, an Irish musical charmer that I haven't seen. And the seriously cute comedy theater camp that was one of my faves led a parade of deals for theatrical distribution for smaller amounts. So, yes, it's going pretty well. So tell me what else struck a chord with you. Well, besides Fair Play, there's another thriller. It's called Eileen, about two women who work at a boys' prison in 1960s New England. For about an hour, I was absolutely sure I knew where this film was going. And then it took a turn. And oh, my God. And then a pair of Mexican biopics, Radical about an inspiring sixth grade teacher and Cassandro with Gael Garcia Bernal playing a gay wrestler. And there are also some star vehicles. You Hurt My Feelings with Julia Louis-Dreyfus as a writer who finds out her husband didn't like her book. Immensita with Penelope Cruz as the radiant mom of a trans teenager. And I guess you could say that still a Michael J. Fox movie is also a star vehicle. It's a remarkably upbeat and entertaining documentary. So I'm at least amazed at how you can figure out what to watch given so many choices. So I'm going to ask if there was anything that really surprised you. There's a, a film called The Tuba Thieves. It is theoretically about a bunch of tubas that went missing from California high schools a decade ago. But it's really about sounds. And I started reading bits about it in the program. The filmmaker is Allison O'Daniel, who is hard of hearing. And she's captioned the sounds in the film in a way that just really grabbed me. It's like crazily disorienting to have sound foregrounded in a visual medium like movies. But it's also intriguing and fascinating and offbeat and kind of exactly what Sundance is supposed to be about. That's movie critic Bob Mondello. Bob, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. This is NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Josie Guarino. Coming to City Space February 6th, James Beard award-winning celebrity chef Ming Tsai to discuss his career journey and the love of East-West cooking. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, The Art of Burning, a comedy exploring the love, rage, and responsibility that go with marriage and parenting in America. Written by Boston favorite Kate Snodgrass and directed by Melia Bensusen. Now through February 5th at the Calderwood Pavilion, BCA. More info at HuntingtonTheater.org. And Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at at bu.edu slash SEO. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Ukraine is threatening to boycott the 2024 Olympic Games in Paris if Russian athletes are allowed to compete. The International Olympic Committee says that athletes shouldn't be discriminated against because of their passports. In Georgia, a Fulton County judge is weighing whether to release the findings of the special grand jury that investigated efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. The district attorney says a decision on whether to seek criminal indictments is coming soon. And another Arctic front will be affecting much of the country in the coming days. Frigid cold temperatures are expected in Minnesota to Wyoming and through the Dakotas. Several inches of snow are likely from Iowa to Michigan. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Imagine going to sleep every night while artillery, Russian shells, rain down. It's a reality many elderly residents in Ukrainian cities along the front lines lived for months. There is fear and loneliness trapped in apartments, cities they couldn't leave. In the eastern city of Slovyansk, there were worries winter would come without heat. But instead, things have gotten better there. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny revisited the city and some of the elderly residents who stayed. Victor Lada ushers us into the apartment he shares with his wife, Lubov. They fuss over us. Help them with their coats, Lubov instructs her husband, who she calls Grandpa. Lubov has bangs and long hair. She's wearing yellow and pink slippers. Do you know how old we are? Tell us. I am 92. Victors in a collared shirt and sweater. They dressed up for our visit. He's one year younger. He is 91. They've been together for more than 70 years. 
What a lovely home. It's not our flat, Lubov says. Our flat was destroyed. Lubov had just gone to bed when the apartment they lived in for 63 years was hit by Russian artillery. The building's exterior wall crashed and fell into their apartment. Lubov was covered in ash and dust, surrounded by debris. She remembers calling out for Victor. His arm was hurt and cut. She says she remembers seeing his blood on the wall. <laughs> so many of their beautiful things destroyed. She's still grieving, Victor says. But they survived. Their survival, their resilience. It's a metaphor for this city, says Svetlana Domorotska. She's a social worker who's worked with the couple for years, bringing them meals, helping around the house. In the fall, Ukrainian forces pushed the Russian front line further back from this city. Now, the shelling is far less frequent. City services have resumed. There's more consistent water, power, and heat. Since the summer, the city's population has doubled. About 50,000 people live here now, about half of what it was before the war. Svetlana still remembers rushing to the Lada's apartment when it was hit. It was terrifying, she says. She stayed with them for hours, cleaning the apartment, and then later helped them move into an apartment their grandson bought for them a few blocks away. They filled the new place with things they could salvage, a lace tablecloth, porcelain dolls, a lamp with bright flowers, and the couch they cleaned and cleaned and cleaned to make it white again. There's still a hole in the back, left over from a piece of shrapnel. Perhaps it was love, Lubov suggests, that helped them survive those long months. Can you remember what made you fall in love? (laughs) (laughs) He was so attentive, Lubov says. She was very neat and had a good figure, Victor says. They were teenagers when they met. When I ask them the secret to living so long, hobbies. Lubov cared for her plants. Victor loves photography. He takes out his digital camera and snaps a photo of us. As we're chatting, the power goes out. Things have improved here. But we're still in Ukraine, Victor says. We're still at war. But that doesn't halt the hospitality. Victor and Lubov are both extremely agile in their 90s, and they bustle around the kitchen, lighting the gas stove with a match, boiling bottled water for coffee. They offer us puff pastries. We sit and talk some more about how life is better now. Their house is warm. They have family nearby. The supermarkets are full. But the effects of the attack still linger. Sometimes we cry and feel sad, Lubov says. Victor lost his dentures in the blast, and Lubov still has a frog-like sound in her ears. But this is not a story about sorrow, says Victor. We survived. We're still here. It's a story 
about happiness. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> Adwani, NPR News, Slovyansk, Ukraine. Academy Award-nominated writer and director Ryan Johnson obviously likes a mind-bending whodunit, which you can tell from his hit movies like Knives Out and his latest Glass Onion, but he also seems to enjoy a classic How to Catch Him, like Columbo and Murder, She Wrote, chock-full of celebrity cameos and easy-to-miss but oh-so-telling details. He linked up with fellow murder mystery aficionado Natasha Lyonne, and the result is their new 10-episode series on Peacock. It's called poker face. You have to buy something if you want to use the bathroom. Yeah, I know what I'm feeling like. Is, uh, let's take a look at your security footage. Why? Are you a cop? Mm. Yeah, I'm a very uh, deep, deep undercover cop. I don't like cops. Neither do I. Right, so I, you know, I'm not a cop. <laughs> then why should I show you my footage? Paradoxical. Leon plays Charlie Kale, who is not your ordinary run-of-the-mill detective, if there is such a thing. She kind of fell into it, or more accurately was pushed after the death of her best friend. But she does have something special, a gift for knowing who's telling the truth and who isn't. And it's as much of a mystery to her as it is to the people she encounters as she travels across the country. We wanted to talk to Johnson about what it was like putting his take on the classic Murder of the Week format and working with Leon and what other secrets he might want to tell us. So he's with us now. Ryan Johnson, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Before we start off, can I just say congratulations on the Academy Award nomination for Best Thank Adapted you. Screenplay for Glass Onion, <laughs> A Knives Out Mystery, your second nomination. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> I, I was going to ask, is it, forgive me for asking, is it still a thrill? I mean, second nomination, <laughs> is it still a thrill or you're like, whatever? Yeah, sure. Of course I got nominated. The day, yeah, the day an Academy Award nomination is not a thrill. I, I think it's time to hang it up. <laughs> yeah, I, I still, <laughs> I'm over the moon. I can't quite believe it. It's pretty cool. So let's get into Poker Face, and I want to get into Charlie's special gift, and I'm going to play a clip of her talking about it. This is the pilot. This is the first episode. Mm-hmm. Every episode has its own story, so that's one of the things I wanted to tell people is that you can just watch that one, and each story is self-contained. This is Natasha Leona's Charlie. She's talking about it with Sterling Frost Jr. He's a casino owner, and he's played by Adrian Brody. You're not reading the cards. How can I read the cards? You're reading me. It's not like it's one thing, like uh, my eye twitches or something. Nah. It's just a general, yeah. you can just tell. Just that something is off. That's the best way to describe it. I could just tell. When anyone is lying, 100% of the time. Can I ask, how did you come up with that? That is kind of her superpower. Well, it was interesting. I mean, we, you know, first of all, this show is kind of a bit of a throwback, and that is case of the week. It's each episode is entirely its own thing. It's very much kind of modeled after, you know, 70s Columbo in its structure and its style. And once I threw the character of Charlie Kale that Natasha plays into this and realized she wasn't going to be a detective or a cop, it was not going to be her job to solve these cases, I felt like it would be good to give her a little something, some reason that she's specifically good at it. And so the notion of her being able to detect lies Um, kind of came to me and Natasha, and we thought that would be interesting. The way that we use the gift, because it's never like the person says, you know, uh, I didn't do it, and she goes, yes, you did, aha. We always find kind of a subtle sideway into it, and 
as she says, once you can tune into people lying, people lie constantly, mostly about really stupid stuff. So it's kind of like birds chattering in the background. It's always there. And why people are lying about specific things becomes the more nuanced but more important question, I guess. I have to tell you, that's, that's one of the things I found so fascinating about it and so enjoyable about it is that, I, how can I put this? It's kind of like the difference between baseball players and basketball players. Mm-hmm. You know, basketball players are six seven, and you think to yourself, uh, I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But baseball players could be your height, right? They could be <laughs> five five or five. I don't know how tall you are. I'm sorry. I'm just saying. They could just be any one of us, and you, they're walking around. And you don't know that they're special until they reveal themselves right. as special. Right. And that's what I found so fascinating about her as a character. Yeah. Um, and and how does Natasha add to that as, a, as an actor? I mean, people may know her, just reminded people, they may know her from Orange is the New Black. What, what does Natasha add to that as an actor? When I think about Columbo, for instance, you know, or the Rockford Files or Magnum P.I., when I think about those shows I was watching... I didn't really watch those shows for the mysteries. The reality is those shows are hangout shows. I I was tuning in every week to hang out with Peter Falk um, because I liked him. And that way I feel like the, the shows have more in common almost with sitcoms. It's kind of like, you know, the central character that you love seeing them take down the bad guy. There's a pleasure to coming back to that and the familiarity of that every week. Why don't I just play a little bit more just so we can hear her talk with that that really that, that really voice. specific vo- that great voice oh, yeah. does she talk like that in real life oh yeah you bet no that's it that's what you get yeah all right let's just just so we can hear more of that yeah. here it is you uh you live on the road right uh yeah yeah i guess i do so what's it like leave everything behind and start fresh well it's uh it's easy. Too easy, maybe. Life of fresh starts. But it suits me. And yeah, and you get to meet all sorts of people. All sorts of lives. All sorts of lives? Lives, but you know, sometimes I just, I take a map, I pick a spot, and I head there. Do you know, I just, she, she cracks, you know the funny thing about her, she just cracks me up, like just... <laughs> Just listening to her talk just cracks me up. On the other hand, though, you just, you can't miss anything because you feel like she's just going to drop some knowledge just at any point. Yeah, yeah. Right? And it's going to be something really deep, and you're going to have to stop and think for a minute about what she said. Well, that's Natasha. She's funny, and she's also incredibly wise. I mean, and I'm talking about in real life, not the character. My friend Natasha, she's, you know, she's lived a lot of life. She's been through a lot of stuff. She's got a lot of wisdom under the hood, and... um yeah, and just and this is similar to Charlie Kale, you know, you underestimate her at your peril. That was one of the other things I was thinking about in terms of how you construct these episodes because um you cannot miss things. I appreciate mm. what you're saying. It's more of a hangout show. Yeah. You're just kind of enjoying the company and the experience and being taken along on the ride. But then when you think about it later, you know, there are all these details. <laughs> it all fits in. Yeah. How how do you construct something like that it just would seem like yeah you'd have to be so careful about every it's like a jenga game you know if you pull out one piece it's going to fall apart yeah i mean that's the kind of story i really love love putting together and i I just kind of build it structurally draw out a map also i had an amazing team of writers in the writer's room and two terrific showrunners uh lilla and nora zuckerman who 
kind of taught me the ropes of how to make a TV show and how to work with a group of writers, which I'd never done before. I was going to ask, what's that, what's that like? What, how did you teach yourself that? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, you know, for me, writing has always been kind of like a <laughs> lonely, uh, terrible, <laughs> unhealthy process. Then suddenly you're in a room filled with all these cool, talented writers and you're bouncing ideas off each other and ordering lunch together. And uh, I don't know, it was a new experience for me. I really did enjoy it. But yeah, and I, in terms of the audience coming into it, the other thing that I think is kind of a throwback to the old TV shows that you mentioned that this is a how catch em. We show you who did it and how they did it at the beginning of the episode. So in that way, it's a little bit more laid back in that it's not like your job is to solve the mystery at the end or something. It's kind of the delight of seeing how Natasha is going to catch up with you and how she's going to nail these people who have done these seemingly unnailable crimes, I guess. So what's next for you? I mean, I've, I remember reading in, in another interview, you actually alluded to this, how yeah. things that you liked to watch kind of growing up. And so now, how do you feel now that you've, you've done your own? I feel, I feel really good. I mean, the same way that, you know, Knives Out and Glass Onion came from me thinking back to what I loved about reading Agatha Christie growing up. This came back to remembering sitting on the, the carpet in front of the TV in the family living room and watching reruns during the day of those hour-long, you know, kind of procedural dramas and um, mystery shows. And I don't know, I watch it. I, I find myself kind of like, I had like the link to all the screeners on my phone in the past few weeks. I find myself just clicking on them and watching them because I really enjoy them. <laughs> I don't know what that's, that's, I've never done that with anything that I've made before, but I just, I can watch Natasha all day long and I just feel like, yeah, with the vibe that we were going for with these, um, I feel like we hit it. I really hope the people people enjoy it and, and, and respond to it. And, and what's next, if we can ask? I'm starting to, uh, to kind of fish for ideas for the next Benoit Blanc oh. mystery. So, yeah, I'm starting to put my whodunit hat back on. So um, I'm really excited, but I'm just in the very beginning phases. So, Michelle, if you got anything for me, I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Ryan Johnson is a two-time Academy Award-nominated writer and director. He is the creator, writer, director, and executive producer of the new Peacock show starring Natasha Lyonne. It's called Poker Face, and it's streaming now. Ryan Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it was great being back. Thank you. <laughs> 